Hi, everyone. It is always great to be with you. Um, it has been a moment since I've gotten to speak here at this campus. And so if any of you don't know me, my name is Mackenzie. I direct our young adult ministries, Timberline College and Timberline 20s and 30s. And it's very, very fun. And in this wild COVID season that we find ourselves in, I had a baby <laughs> and he's wonderful. It's funny because we self-isolated and quarantined around this time last year, actually a little earlier than this time last year. And I keep hearing on the weekends when I'm seeing people that they didn't even know I was pregnant. So surprise, Powell J. Matthews was born in June and our hands and our hearts have been so full ever since. But that's some of where I've been. All that to say, it's good to be here, be with you now. We are concluding our series today called, Who Do We Think We Are? all about who we are as the church, our collective identity. Who are we? In this series, we've looked, we've asked, we've reminded ourselves of who we are, allowing that to guide us and inspire us to live and act in the ways we're created to, together. We've done this looking through the lens of the church in Ephesus. We've been with them for a bit, putting ourselves in their shoes, learning from them, and the city of Ephesus was the most important city in the Roman province of Asia, what is today Turkey. Ephesus was built on a natural harbor. It was the largest commercial center in its region, known for its centers of pagan worship. It housed the temple, the huge temple, to the Greek god Artemis, as the Romans called her, Diana. And there was a massive movement of God in this city. Paul had spent several years in Ephesus before writing the letter to the Ephesians, and they just had a thriving Christian community there, despite persecution. Today, we're going to wrap up with the letter written to this community in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, which is the section to the letters of the seven churches, beginning with Ephesus. This letter was written by John while he was exiled on the island of Patmos. It was written some 30, 35 years after Paul's letter. So this is like the postscript to this church, like a where are they now special. <laughs> and it's helpful to keep in mind that there's an entire generation, a whole nother generation of the church added to the mix here. So if you have your Bibles and you'd like to follow along, you could flip right to the very back, the last book of the Bible, Revelation uh, chapter two. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is a beautiful picture of Jesus himself, the one who holds and walks among these seven churches described as lampstands. It was similar to another biblical picture we have from the temple in the Old Testament, the place God's presence rested and connected with his people. In the temple, there was a seven-branched candlestick that gave light for the priests to see. Just as the churches were to be light to their surrounding communities, the lampstands is a picture of the church and its purpose. This is what Jesus says to them. I know your deeds your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Yet this I hold against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did 
at first. Okay, so here we have Jesus himself bringing some words to this community. We have first some encouragement. They are commended for right behavior. They have endured, persevered. They're seemingly not struggling with some of the big ticket things often touched on like immorality, idolatry, temptation. We don't hear about any of that. Like they are doing well. They are commended for right beliefs, having correct understanding, good discernment, knowing truth, and identifying false teachers. Like, yay, them. They're good, looking clean, doing the right things. Jesus commends their right behavior and their right beliefs. So what else is left? Like, what could be missing here? Verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. The love. You have left your first love. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, the truth of it. That despite them looking great on the outside, in behavior and belief, there was something missing on the inside. The priority of their hearts, their passion, their desire, their attention, had fallen out of alignment with Jesus. Apparently, it is possible to do all the right things and be missing the point, to be missing the heart of the matter, to be going through the motions, um, to have perfect church attendance, to say the right things, to appear put together, to know all the right answers, but to have lost our first love. We see this kind of rebuke several places um, throughout scripture when the behavior didn't match the heart. Jesus in confronting the religious leaders brought this kind of correction when he said, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. <laughs> Ouch. Or again, when he says, uh, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. We see in the Old Testament, in Hosea, when he says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God, rather than burnt offerings. We have a God who craves to be priority in our hearts. He knows our tendencies and our contradictions. G. Campbell Morgan uh, said, no amount of activity in the king's service will make up for neglect of the king. If you hear nothing else from me today, this is what I want you to know. God longs to be top priority in our hearts. The first tenet of the Westminster Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I think we get the glorify God part. Like we understand that. But how good are we at enjoying him? Is this something that we do? Is this something that gets forgotten? How much are you enjoying God? I've heard it said that that's a pretty good measure of your spiritual maturity, enjoying him. Jesus rejects the empty ritual 
he points us back to alignment of heart and action. You know, we live in a day um, when this kind of disconnect happens all the time. In our social media life, we can look far different from our actual life. We've become experts in curating ourselves, in hand-selecting and organizing and presenting what we choose to share about ourselves. We share the highlight reel, the best of the best photos of the best of the best times, not our everyday mundane ones. And there's a danger in that on multiple levels. We compare our seemingly mediocre lives to the curated life of someone else, which can be very unfortunate. Do you do that? Do you recognize where you see the perfect family, always smiling, in a clean home, somehow always on vacation? And then you look around at your home and your family and the stress and mess of it, and you wonder if there's something wrong, right? This touches all areas um, in relationships, work success, travel, body image. It's all over it. This comparison beast is real. And comparison really is the thief of joy. There's no doubt, no doubt about it. And the other disconnect that happens here is I think it becomes easier to fake it, to be so accustomed to projecting an image of us that we become disconnected with the heart and truth of the actual us. But God knows our hearts. He knows the heart of it, the truth of the matter in you and in me. And he longs to reconnect with us. You know, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was in Matthew 22, right? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your perfect church attendance and well-crafted Christian appearance. <laughs> That's not what he said. No, Jesus replied, which with the same language that he's using toward the church in Ephesus in Revelation 22, same language. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not attend or check the box. It's not a formula. It's heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God with all you've got first. And love your neighbor. All hangs on these. Love God and love others. God is completely in tune with the desires of our hearts. If you were a car, he's the mechanic, intimately familiar with what's under your hood, with all your dashboard lights and the coats. He knows your motivations, your insecurities, your anger, your shame. He knows your passions, your hopes, your joys. God, who is completely in tune with the good and bad of you, longs to be top priority in your heart. Now, our hearts are wild. They're hard to tame. It's common advice these days to hear someone say, follow your heart, or to say the heart wants what it wants, to which it doesn't. It wants what it's fed. The heart wants what it's fed. So what are you feeding it? Follow your heart is actually terrible advice. <laughs> our hearts are not reliable. In Jeremiah 17, it says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? There's a struggle here. In the broken world we live in, our hearts can be hard to tame. 
prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We sang that just a few minutes ago. Wherever your heart lands today, faithful, joyful, wayward, heavy, or numb, God longs to be top priority in your heart, your first love. So what does it look like? How do we cultivate it? I think of marriage. Marriage is a picture of the Christian life. Um, And in this, I think it's helpful to think through its lens as we pursue Jesus. For my single friends watching, I just want to say this doesn't make you exempt from understanding. If you are not married, um, this still applies. If you've never been married, you can still understand the love of God. (laughs) And as an aside here, if you as a single person in the church have ever felt or been made to feel like you are JV in your singleness, like you are not enough, you're incomplete, um, I just want to say I'm sorry. I just want you to know that you're not. You're included, valued part of this community. We need you, your voice and perspective. So my single people out there, surely you've seen married people or you've likely seen people in the dating phase of relationships. I want you to recall this as we think about this picture. My husband, Justin, many of you know and love him as one of our youth pastors here at Timberline. Some people call him J-Matt. It can be confusing. Our last name is Matthews. So it's his nickname. He's the most fun. And if you know him, I know that you agree with me. We've been married for going on nine years. We started dating 13 years ago. We've had several cross-country moves. We've celebrated victories. We've mourned painful moments. And we found our way back to each other again and again. We love each other and we like each other. Like I just like being with him. We could be doing nothing together and it's something. I'm thankful that he's in this with me. The year is 2007. Summer in Northern California, it is hot and dry. Uh, We were both serving at a Young Life summer camp for high school and middle school students. We are working hard and we are loving our lives. He's the mountain bike intern, it's fitting. I work in the office and we are just good friends. But I was always attracted to who he was. Like if there's an open seat at lunch next to him, like I'm choosing it. We were good friends who then went home and we kept talking talking a lot. We were like totally into each other. And we started dating like six months later. When I think back to that, when I, we first started dating, we started dating long distance. Uh, He's attending the University of Tennessee in Knoxville at the time. And I was attending CSU here in Fort Collins. And we talked all the time. Like if there's a spare moment, I'm likely on the phone with Justin or texting Justin. Um, He was the one I wanted to be with. I wanted to be around. I want to be talking to. Our love at first, I like to say, was coded in joy and googly eyes. The kind where your heart like flutters a bit. There's so much delight, so much to learn and discover about each other, so much potential for what life could be and the heart racing excitement of first love. Now we know each other better. We know each other pretty well. I am familiar with his particulars. Like I can tell you his pet peeves. I know that he will leave the cabinet open after grabbing a dish. He will. Or that you'll find his shoes on the floor by the chair he most loves. I know the face he makes when he's in thought, the tone he has when he gets fired up, the specific kind of things that are going to make him laugh the hardest. I know him. Our love has changed. I think it's gotten better. 
and richer as we've chosen each other in the good and in the hard in the time that we've been together. But I think there's a unique thought here. Thinking of love at first, the early passion of a new, pure first love. Have you seen it? Experienced it? Do you remember it? The passion and zeal of that face. This is true for the dating college students I know. Um, this is true for my widowed great-grandmother who was also dating. There's a unique passion to a pure first love. So what does that kind of love look like for our connection to Jesus? And how do we revive a love that's grown cold? For some of us in our relationships with God, we are not in the young love season any longer. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long, long time, or maybe you are very much in that passionate, fresh love season in your faith. Either way, the words from Jesus in our scripture today tell us that when you drift from him, you can get realigned. A love that's grown cold can be revived. There are three things he invites here for the church in Ephesus. He says, you have forsaken the love you had at first, Consider how far, how far you have fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. So three things for reviving a love grown cold. The first one is remember. Consider how far you've fallen. In the Greek here, the word remember is actually kind of like a two-sided coin of recall and rehearse. The Jewish people have always been good at the practice of remembering their story and rehearsing it in a way that sensitizes its power. They experience it and walk through their story in a way that brings it back to their hearts and minds afresh, like amplifying the truth of their story. They do this through rhythm, through practice, through festivals, through Sabbath observance. Recall and rehearse. Recall what you were. Remember how far you've come. In the lyrics of Amazing Grace, it says, How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was lost, I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And how precious the grace, the hour I first believed. It's the remembrance of a fresh first love. How acquainted are you with your story, your victories, the places God has grown and shaped you? Do you remember them? today. I want you to own your story, to give God the glory. This allows us to see him in his power and his intimate personal love for us. Some of you may need to get reacquainted with your story, to remember who you are and where you came from so that you can identify where you are now. You'd slow down enough to pinpoint it. Remember. The second is repent. There is power in presenting yourself in your brokenness before God. Don't just feel guilty and pull up your bootstraps and your good intentions. No. Run to God and cry out for mercy. Express your desire, your shortcomings, the places that you've been distracted or you've entertained other loves. In Hebrews, it says, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so it may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need, repent. And lastly, return. The verse in Revelation says to do the things you did at first. Return, or I like to say, redo the first love things. 
What does that mean? What were they doing? We don't exactly know. But to act like we did in the days of fresh first love. I want to unpack some elements of first love. First love takes risks. First love takes risks. People who are freshly in love, like, do crazy things, right? Extravagant, over-the-top kind of things. Pursuit, if done right, is bold and beautiful and risky. When someone is newly in love, they put themselves out there. You remember that moment, gosh, when you express how you felt for the first time? <laughs> Brave. Or when you plan that date and you make it over the top. Or when you continue to woo and pursue the person you've been with for years, still pursue, taking risks, putting yourself out there, going for it. A risky, brave, beautiful pursuit. What might it look like to take a risk for the name of loving God or your neighbor? Maybe you've never done any kind of missions before. You could go on a trip. You could commit to being a leader or mentor with our high school or middle school students. Nothing is quite as humbling when you try to put yourself out there to be friends with an eighth grade girl and get rejected. <laughs> I have been there. It is brave. You could join a small group or start one. Maybe it's a move. Maybe it's starting a Bible city with your neighbors or joining the prayer team. We have so many opportunities you can get involved with here. When we step out of our comfort zones, it forces us to be dependent on God. And that is a beautiful place that God wants to meet with you, to care for you and to provide for you. So often in our culture, it's so easy to think that we can take care of ourselves. I don't need God, right? I have a credit card, which credit card debt is real. And we know that that's not true. We all need him. And we're all moments away from our knees really at any time. But I think there's a unique intimacy and delight in our relationships with God when we place ourselves outside of our comfort zone and depend on him willingly. It's not comfortable, but it's so good. What things are you willing to do and to try to step out and be brave? Maybe what are you waiting for? If you're waiting for the perfect opportunity or to have the perfect schedule with enough time to do it, or even small lights to light up your feet, like the movie theater, to point you to the exact thing you should do. You'll never do it. Stop waiting for signs. God is looking for volunteers. First love takes risks. First love talks. When Justin and I first started dating, even before we were dating, you know, I've said this a bunch, but we were talking a lot. Like we could accidentally talk for several hours longer than we planned. We talked a lot, but I also talked about him too. I wanted to share him with everyone. I was retelling his stories or making him retell my favorite stories to people who hadn't heard them yet. He's a really good storyteller, but I wanted to share him and I would constantly tell people how much they were gonna love him. And I can attest, I am one of those people who will find something that I love and I'm gonna tell everyone about it. Like new podcast, I love it. Air fryer, I'm already on the train. Reality TV show I find fascinating, you must watch it. My cordless Dyson vacuum, I have told people out of my mouth that it will change their life. <laughs> I'm dramatic like that. When I love something, I'm all about it. I'm gonna dive hard and I'm gonna talk about it. And I think we do that. When we love something, we talk. Are you that way? How expressive are you? about the things you love? How talkative are you about your faith, about what God has done for you?
I think first love is talkative in relationship and out of the overflow of it, it spills out of us. First love talks. First love stays curious. First love stays curious. Early on in any relationship, there is so much to discover. And in mature relationships, this can be one of the things that slips a bit. The mistake is made of thinking, you've been there, you've done that. Most relationships die because of boredom. Dr. John Gottman, um, a psychologist and professor at the University of Washington, in his book, The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, describes one of his key principles for a thriving relationship being a detailed love map, which is his term for the part of the brain where you store relevant information about your partner's life. In his book, he contrasts couples who have a habit of inattention of their spouse's life versus couples who are intimately familiar and attentive with each other's world. He says the healthy couples have made plenty of cognitive room for their marriage. Without making space to continue to know someone, can you truly love them? Now there's an art uh, to continued curiosity and discovery in relationship, to learning to ask good questions, to be cautious of our assumptions. Can you find ways in an old and long relationship to emphasize or maybe re-emphasize the particulars? Can you find things to do in sync in each other's worlds that you didn't do before? Our beloved pastor and friend, Dr. Dick Foth on our team, has been married for 57 years to Ruth. 57 years. I love them. And when Foth and I were talking about this idea of first love, he started sharing about Ruth in all the ways he continues to choose her and love her. He talked about how much she loves to garden, that she has always loved to garden, but in recent years, guess who's taken an interest in gardening? Dr. Foth, why? Because there's value in taking interest in each other's worlds. He does so intentionally. What is your curiosity level in your faith? What does discovery look like when you've been walking with Jesus for a long time? You can't ever discover all of God. You can't. And if the rhythms you practice have gotten dry, I want to encourage you, if it's not working, try something new. Start a new Bible study or a different reading plan. Maybe get away, practice some solitude, go on a retreat. Get in a small group where you can hear people sharing what they're learning. Practice a new discipline, all with the intention to discover more of God. First love is curious. So as we wrap up, thinking of first love and the desire God has to be top priority in our hearts, knowing that we're prone to wander, but that first love can be revived. Keeping this in mind, I want to look at another account from Jesus's life, the triumphant entry. Depending on when you're watching this, um, the weekend this is being recorded marks the beginning of Holy Week. The Sunday is Palm Sunday, the day when we retell and remember Jesus and his triumphant entry into Jerusalem before his death and resurrection, which we will honor and celebrate next weekend. The triumphant entry is an account that's in all four of the Gospels. And what's amazing from this moment is that for centuries, the promised Messiah, the coming King, was said to come on a donkey. He would come victorious, yet humble. In Mark chapter 11, it says this. When they brought the colt, the donkey, 
to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it. He sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. This moment, I like to imagine it. I imagine it as like the sun is going down and the light is shining in that special way it does at, at like dusk. It's shining off the city in all of its cream and warm tones. The streets are lined with people, a crowd of people buzzing and hyped, declaring their anticipation and love for their coming king. They shout, Hosanna, which is a Hebrew word translated into Greek that meant salvation. Salvation has come. It's the moment where Jesus is received and adored by his people, aligned rightly with the reality of who he is, the promised savior, the coming king, their Messiah. Jesus knew that the passion and love he deserved and received in this moment would fade. He knew what was gonna lie ahead for him, but also what would come of this crowd. This adoring crowd would leave their love this adoring crowd would be the very same people in a couple of days to turn and yell, crucify him, crucify him. And still he receives their worship in this moment, deserving of every bit of it. We know how the story plays out, right? And Jesus, when he says, forgive them, they don't know what they do. This is true for them. It holds true still for us that he is gracious with our shortcomings. As we prepare to celebrate Easter, as we walk into Holy Week, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday, the day we remember the resurrection power that we have in our King Jesus. Knowing what's to come, we can still place ourselves here, place ourselves in this account, imagining ourselves along the road that Palm Sunday, lining the street as Jesus enters Jerusalem, waving palms and loving our King Jesus. He is gracious with our shortcomings. And when we lose eyes for him, he still has eyes for us. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Let's pray together. God, we are moved and humbled by your steadfast faithfulness and love to us who are prone to wander. God, we sing Hosanna. We declare you are our savior, worthy of our love, our adoration and our worship. And God, right now, we just present our hearts before you. As we are, you see us, you love us. And we pray, God, that you would help us to align our hearts and our actions, the actions of our lives, that we'd be aligned with you, connected to you, passionately in love with you. God, we pray for a movement of your spirit in our church. God, that you would be the top priority in our hearts. Help us to pursue you to do the things we did at first. Would you lead us and guide us? Help us to connect with you, to step out of our comfort zone, to discover more of you. And for anyone today who would say like, I'm far off, but I want to pursue Jesus. I want to start this relationship with him. If that's you, you could just pray this short prayer with me. God, here I am. I place myself in your hands. Forgive me. 
I receive your grace and I wanna trust you with my future. Thank you for loving us, for being gracious with us in our shortcomings, for having eyes for us, even when we lose eyes for you. We love you. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys.